Today we'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, so if you want to get uh, a Bible out and look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that's the, the space we'll be in. In chapters 1 and 2, so far we've had this conversation around the author of Ecclesiastes being able to invite people, this assembler, that's what Ecclesiastes means, is it's the assembly. We use it in Greek in the New Testament, it's the word ekklesia, which we've translated into the church. So it's the same word used for church in the New Testament, given to as the title of this book in the Old Testament called the assembly. And so the one who wrote the assembly was the one who was going to preach or teach when he gathered people together. So these are really the wise sayings of the preacher or the teacher in an Old Testament context when a community of people were assembled. So he would say, this is the message that I want you to hear. And that's really interesting because in the first two chapters, the message that the speaker wanted his audience to hear was, everything is just meaningless. I guess there's no point to it. Which seems really, like, a really terrible way to start a message if you're the preacher for the assembly is, none of it matters. Like, this is... A really ridiculous story that we're all a part of and I can't figure it out but he goes on in these first chapters to say I have all of the resources at my fingertips to study everything and so I'm gonna do that on your behalf he's it, it's in my interpretation it's him going hey I just want you to know I'm gonna really I'm gonna try some really weird and stupid things but there's a point to it I'm trying to see if we can find meaning in life so I am going to date everyone I'm gonna drink everything I'm going to eat it all, I'm going to create it all, I'm going to study it all, and then I'll tell you my results. And his results are, it's all pointless. There's no satisfaction in any of it. We think that he's leading to this unless aspect of the story. And in chapter 3, he starts to add this unless. He starts to go in, it's all meaningless unless... God's part of it unless it's part of a bigger story unless it's part of something that is forever and that's what we're gonna start to unlock a little bit this morning is the unless part but in order to get into chapter 3 and, and it makes sense and feel that there is tension in chapter 3 you have to understand that in the first two chapters the author has said it's all pointless there's no reason for anything there's no focus on anything. Pleasure, pointless. Trying, pointless. Daily toil, pointless. And then he goes into chapter 3 and he changes a little bit of what he's talking about. You've probably memorized Ecclesiastes 3 at some point if there was a season in your childhood or your adult life where you were on that Forrest Gump train. Um, there's a song in it by the birds called Turn, 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 like for every season, Turn, Turn, Turn. It was written actually in the 1950s, then adapted by the birds in the 1960s. But it's Ecclesiastes chapter 3 with this for every season, Turn, Turn, Turn hook. Like it's the whole chapter within this hook in the middle. And it was turned into a song that is used in... Again, Forrest Gump, it was the first song ever played in the Wonder Years. If you were a Wonder Years kid and you grew up watching the Wonder Years, after the initial credits come through, Turn, Turn, Turn was the first song after that. So Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is the first thing that starts the Wonder Years. Best show, right? It's also 
in several episodes of The Simpsons. So just balance that out, right? There's a season for everything. And it's there. A few weeks ago, my daughters had come home from a wedding where in the reception they had done what normal people do in a wedding reception and they had seen the dancing that is attempted after weddings. I had brought the little man home early because bedtimes, you know, right? There is a season where parents are separated because you have infants and they have to go to bed way before any of the dancing at wedding receptions happen. And so I was at home with Finn and Sarah and the girls are at this wedding and they come home and as they enter into the house, there's not a story about how the reception went. They just stand in the middle of our like entryway and are practicing dancing with one another. Like they're showing each other how they can floss. Raise your hand if you know the floss. Several of you. Raise it like Seth said he, he would show it to us if we needed to see it. Right? So, it's just like, so you, we'll get back to that in a second. But it made me think because I'm watching and if you've seen the floss, like you have one hand swinging in front and one hand swinging behind and then you try to see how fast you can go as you alternate sides of your body. It's, I know, it doesn't make any sense, right? But I'm watching them learn that, and as I'm looking at my sixth grade daughter, who is learning the floss, I'm remembering my own sixth grade year, where I was in my bedroom with a mirror in front of me, some kid and play on, practicing the running man. Were you there? Were you, like, remember? And I'm thinking, it was just running without moving, right? So there's this season that changes. For me, it started with this like, oh, in sixth grade, I remember the running man. That was stupid. And you could maybe connect with that one. And then like, I was just writing them down. I thought after the running man, there was this thing called the electric slide. Do you remember it? I have been in youth ministry environments recently where the older leaders have had to teach middle schoolers what the electric slide is because for everything there's a season and they don't do that anymore like they're like what is that dance that you're doing why is everyone standing in that line and they're teaching the electric slide to children it doesn't make you feel old at all then we moved into these spaces where there's like things like the dab do you remember that like it happened a few years ago where you could be like maybe you're at chipotle and you're in line and you look back in the back of the room and they're just like 12 year olds in the back just like dabbing like they were just like ducking their head in their own elbow while their other hand is sticking out in the air and you're like what is happening Cam Newton the quarterback for the Carolina pa Panthers made this thing famous for a while and no matter what you told an elementary or a middle school child if you said we're gonna have school pizza today dab they would just do it in the middle of messages while I was at church camps, I would say something that someone would agree with and they would dab in the crowd. They'd be like, yeah, I've done that. And there would just be a dab in the middle. I'm like, what? why? What are you doing? I'm glad that season is pretty much over. There's a season before that called the Macarena. Do you, anyone remember the Macarena season of life? If, I'm pretty sure if you go to sports games, they still believe that that season is relevant now and people do that. You could add the wave there too. The Whip and Nene. Is anyone here know The Whip and Nene? Anyone want to do it? Seth, you up for that one too? Where is Steve today? I need Steve. 
Steve would do all of these things for us and be really proud of himself. And Caleb would love it. It would be great. The Bernie Lean. Anyone know the Bernie Lean? That's been a recent one. So if you, if you watched Weekend at Bernie's, it's also called The Wobble a little bit. But So you're like, oh yeah. It's named after Weekend at Bernie's, the 80s movie. And the dance move is to like dance like Bernie walked. So you like your shoulders are back and you're just like this, like the whole time. It's like you're a, a dead man walking the whole time. Like it's hilarious. The Bernie has been something recent. And then, does anyone know the Russell? No one knows the Russell. Interesting. Because before this next one, before the floss, there was the Russell. This is the season of, the, of flossing. <laughs> Dentists everywhere are happy, right? So the, the floss is this really crazy fast-paced move. One hand is in front, one hand is behind, and you're trying to swing your arms. I will not attempt it because I will hurt myself. And it came from this boy who went to church camp. And he went to church camp. And while the worship was playing, because you know church camp worship is really not about Jesus, it's really about the crowd and making them believe that it's about Jesus. It's about dancing and I once had a girl pass out because she was banging her head so much in worship at a church camp. She felt like worship at church camp, not so much about worship as much as it is about like energetic adventure. And the song is playing, beat is amazing, and this kid named Russell starts swinging his hands, one in front of him and one behind him. And all of his friends in youth group with him look and they're like, Russell, what are you doing? That's amazing. I've got to do it too. And so they all start doing this thing. And he looks and he's got the whole row swinging their arms to the left and to the right. And they say, what is that? What do you call it? And he's like, I call it the Russell because that's my name. And then because it was like 2014, he got a phone out and he recorded it and then he put it on YouTube and he called it the Russell and he was going back and forth. And that play was seen by, like this video was seen by Rihanna because he flossed and made fun of her. Rihanna is a professional artist. And so she reposted Russell's post about the Russell and she said, ha ha, this kid is hilarious. And somehow included the word floss in the post and it was no longer the Russell. It was now called the floss. And it started to go crazy. Katy Perry then reaches out to Russell and says, hey, I'm performing for Saturday Night Live. You know what would be really cool? Is if you came on in the middle of my song and swung your arms as fast as you could side to side in front of millions of people who are going to watch this later on YouTube. Because no one really watches Saturday Night Live when it actually happens anymore. We just watch the YouTube videos later. And so this is Russell. He's serious, man. He is, he's known for Instagram videos where his face stays really serious. And he does these dance moves. He's now known as the Backpack Kid. Because everyone thought that from the very beginning, he had created this dance called the floss, and he did it while wearing a backpack. But it's interesting, the song that had developed, he created it as the Russell at a church camp with no backpack. But right before this SNL sketch, he had been at a store with his friend, and he liked his friend's backpack. So he traded a pair of shoes for the backpack and put the backpack on. 
and then walked out on stage for SNL and from henceforth was now called the Backpack Kid. His story changed. And we could get into it and go, well, how could the story, like, how could I have a story like that? How would I create a story where a girl, and it's like, you can't. You can't just know that your dance at a church camp when you're 14 is going to turn into this significant, like, global, weird dance that Katy Perry and Rihanna are going to post about and tell everyone about and that just because you liked the backpack and threw it on before you walked on stage, it was now going to define your identity. You can't plan for it, but you can look at it and go, his life is so different now than it was before. Because seasons change. And a kid from church camp ends up on a Saturday Night Live stage because he comes up with a stupid dance. And some of us look back and go, man, I did some dumb things in middle school, but that was so long ago. I haven't danced like that in a really long time. I'm not even sure if I should. Because seasons change. And our stories adapt. And sometimes we get caught in looking back at why our story changes and why it goes from great to good to bad to great to bad instead of looking and going, where do I find God in the season that I'm in? Because stories are going to change no matter what. And that's the dialogue that we want to have today. And I was reminded of it because I used to do The Running Man. And now I watch my kids floss. In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the beginning just starts with everything has a season. If you look at chapter 3 verse 1, it says, there's a time for everything. I'm caught up on that word of everything before we even, like, I'm struggling with it. We made dialogue about it. I would love to go out and have conversations around coffee with that because I love coffee. But is there really a time for everything? Because the author says there's a time for everything. If you look at the political landscape of a country, if you look at the number of orphans in the world, if you look at the amount of human trafficking that's around, if you look at heroin epidemics, if you look at some of the chaos that's in our houses today, am I sure that the author of Ecclesiastes is accurate when he says there is a time for everything because I don't really like everything. There's a lot of things that would be included in the everything that I am actively opposed to but this author starts and says there's a time for everything. And I go, really? Because there are some things happening that I don't like. Do we have to include those? And then he goes on and he says, there's a season for every activity under the heavens. And I think that the balance of everything is included and the, and the word, the active word of season, that that means that there is a season has a beginning and an end, right? That there's a season, that that changes our conversation because instead of saying, this is just always how it's going to be, because there's a time for everything and now you're stuck, the author actually redeems my perspective in saying there's a time for everything and there's a season for it. 
It means some things are going to start and they're going to end. It doesn't mean that the pain is going to continue forever or that the joy is always going to be here or that you can bank on the job or the relationship. It means that without effort or without engagement, without intentionality, things that are supposed to last a season feel eternal. But they're supposed to last for a season. It's often us who get caught in the foreverness of that. It's us that believe that our story is never going to change. It's never going to be good again. Our bank accounts are never going to be in the black. Our health is never going to return to us. Our friendships are never going to be the same. Our loneliness is never going to change. Our family is never going to be healthy. The nevers come when we don't believe in season. It doesn't mean that God has eternally written pain on us, but it doesn't mean that the, that the reality of God means the absence of a painful season either. The question is, do you go through things in a season or are you stuck in the eternity of something? Because God wants to bring you into a season so that it can change. In Ecclesiastes verses 2 through 5, it starts to dive into this idea that for everything there is a season. It says in verse 2, a time to be born and a time to die. There's a time to plant and a time to uproot. There's a time to kill and a time to heal. That's when I would circle and be like, really? There's a time to kill? Can you tell me when that is? Maybe it's the spiders in my backyard. Maybe that's the only time. A time to tear down and a time to build. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. There's a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. Do you remember the last time you scattered stones and gathered them? When was that season? A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to search and a time to give up. A time to keep and a time to throw away. A time to tear and a time to mend. A time to be silent and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. Really? Really? There's a time to hate? We sure Jesus is okay with that? A time for war and a time for peace. If these were... A choose-your-own-adventure list, which ones would you choose? Would you choose peace all the time? Or are you okay with a little war? Is there ever a time on your choose-your-own-adventure that you would want hate in there? I recently listened to a message on this that someone said, I'm good with laughter and weeping. I just want to laugh until I weep. Like I want that kind of weeping where my laughter leads me to crying. But that's the only crying that I would put on my list. If I were to choose the times, which of this list would I put on my adventure list? Would it only be the positive ones? This past year, my grandmother passed away, the last grandparent that I had alive. I wouldn't choose mourning if it was on my list. But what's been interesting is through mourning the loss of my grandfather, my father and I have a better relationship. It's changed us. The fact that he has no parents left on this earth has changed the perspective of the family 
concerning our dad. I've probably become more nurturing of him. Which is really weird. Because our relationship has never really been nurturing. And if I was in charge of the adventure, I wouldn't have put that into my story. My grandmother lived a full life, a really full life. And so while we mourn the loss of her, I don't regret that God would write mourning into my story because what I found with my dad was worth suffering to find. Sometimes we don't write our own adventures because we would lose out on the adventure that God has for us. That's what this author is telling us. But it leads me to ask a a question of why does everything have a season? And I could give you my answers as to why I think things have a season, but I don't know everything. So I actually asked this question back to the author of Ecclesiastes 3. So why? Why would you say, if you're If you're setting us up and saying everything has a season, are you setting us up to give us an answer? And if you look next, he says, the answer for everything to have a season is that everything is beautiful. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11, he says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. His first response is, the reason that there is a season for everything is that everything is beautiful. I struggle with this one. Because I have stood next to children who were dropped off on a bus at an institution lied to by their parents said you're going to go play with the cute kids and there are animals inside this gate I'll be back later today knowingly abandoning them for the rest of their life so I struggle that everything is beautiful when I have seen the story of orphaned children around the world who were dropped off in an institution and given a bunk bed with all the other kids who in their words weren't cute and there were no animals. Is everything really beautiful? Because that's what the author is saying. He's not saying just the cute stuff. He's not saying the Gap commercial. He's not saying when you win. He's not saying the championship years. He's not saying just in adoption. He's not saying just when you have a great family. He's saying in everything there is beauty. There's a time for it too. Whew. Is he sure? Because I'm not. I'm not sold on the everything. And I don't want us to force our way through a passage and go, oh yeah, everything, it is beautiful. Because in reality, it's why the world doesn't like Christians very much. Because we're often the ones who carry the perspective, well, well, God's going to use it for His glory. It's going to be great on the end. And you're like, you're not sitting where I'm sitting right now. Is everything really beautiful? But that's His thesis. 
is that there is a season for everything because in everything there is beauty and there is a time for everything. We're just not sure that in the time, in the season of this, are we going to experience the beauty while we're in it. He not only says that everything is beautiful in its time, he then goes on to say everything is beautiful in its time when hearts are set on forever. Now I might buy in a little more. If you tell me that everything is beautiful, I don't know. But if you tell me that everything is beautiful when hearts are set on forever, I now have to figure out what you mean by forever. Do you mean that this is going to endure? Or do you mean that the season is going to change and the abandonment is going to leave? There's going to be reconciliation. There's going to be reunification. There could be a different story coming. Now maybe I agree. Maybe. But I'm still not sure. But he says in the same passage in verse 11, he says, He has also set eternity in the human heart. He doesn't say the saved heart. He doesn't say the redeemed heart. He doesn't say the Jesus heart. He actually says that the Lord has set eternity on the human heart. That it is not built for this temporal space. And that everything is beautiful when hearts are set on forever. Later, Paul would say in Philippians chapter 1 verse 21, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What he's really saying there is, to live is like Jesus while you're here, but forever is going to be different. John in Revelation would say, we're going to go to a place where there is now no weeping, no crying, no death, no pain. There's going to be a foreverness coming. So do I agree and do we agree that everything is beautiful when our hearts are set on the foreverness? That my satisfaction doesn't come in the season that I'm experiencing solely here. But satisfaction comes through the what's next. That's the first two parts of the thesis. But then the most maddening part of this message for me is that then he adds like a third part to the sentence, right? So everything is beautiful when hearts are set on forever in the great mystery of God. And I'm like, so you're not even going to answer it. He's like, yeah, yeah. So you need to believe that everything is beautiful and that you're going to go forever and I'm not going to tell you why all the time. I'm not sure that I have really healthy emotions about whoever wrote this at this point because I want to know. I want to know if there's going to be a good ending. I want to know how he's going to redeem it. What if my beauty in the moment is understanding how God is going to use this for his purpose? And we're not going to dive into the rest of like all the chapter, but he actually concludes the chapter of saying, you're not going to know because you don't know what happens after you're gone. Grandma doesn't know that her life and death reconciled her son and grandson deeper than when she was alive. She doesn't know. We know. Because there was a time to mourn. Right? So, I don't know, right? This is where you write that story of like, well, in heaven, God is bringing her next to him and saying, look at your boy and look at his boy. I don't even know that that's how, like, I'm pretty sure she's just like, I'm just looking at you. You're Jesus. When we embrace the mystery 
of life, we can go on a journey to find beauty in who we are and what we do because we know the story goes forever and we know some things just don't make sense. And being able to say it out loud that some things just didn't go the way we planned them and some things didn't go the way we wanted them and some things just don't make sense can actually heal and draw us together to celebrate in the moment of saying, I don't know why and I don't know how, but there's something to the beauty of knowing I'm not alone in being a person who has been messed with or upset or frustrated or who doesn't understand the why and the how. Because there's beauty in the perspective of forever and the mystery of God. That's what the author of Ecclesiastes 3 is telling us. But then I ask, what do we do with that? Just walk around telling people? It's beautiful. Your suffering is beautiful. God is going to do some things through that. Because most of the time when people tell me that and I'm in a dark place, I want to punch them in the face. I want them to go away. I want them to find another church. I don't even believe they're part of the church. Because I'm like, if you understood what I'm going through right now, you would not tell me what God is going to do. You would sit next to me in this mess until God does something. And I wonder if that's it. I wonder if that's the action step. Because these are the author's words in Ecclesiastes 3. It says that, Every, uh, skipping, 12 and 13. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. And this is not a be happy, health and wealth, be happy. This is a be filled. Be purposeful. Find satisfaction in the pursuit and joy. More, maybe more of a word, joy than you just got all the toys that you wanted. But to be happy and to do good while they live, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing will be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear Him, not be scared of Him, but know the path, right? Not be afraid of God, but know oncoming traffic is coming. If you step in front of it, you will die. Be afraid of walking across the street without looking both ways. That kind of fear is what he's talking about. A healthy fear. If you know that your life is to the fullest when you pursue joy and eat and drink and work. That, so that's his answer. His action step is be happy. In season, in laughter, and in weeping, find joy in war and peace. Find joy in love and hate. Not internally even, but externally in oppressive seasons. When there is war around you, find happiness. How? If there's drink, drink it together. 
If there's food, eat it together. The author of Ecclesiastes would not understand drive throughs He did not go to single-serving spaces where food and drink would be experienced. The author here would only understand eat and drink in the context of community and family. Be happy. How? Go to where they have food. Why? Because there are people there. And if they're willing to share a meal with you, they're willing to share this season with you. So come to the table, sit where there are others, because you can endure a season when you're not alone. And it says no matter the season, do good work. Spend time working, whether the season is good or bad. One of the most influential people on my life and my brother-in-law's life is a man named Brett. Brett does not live on this earth anymore. Brett was diagnosed with cancer right after I had met him. Very interestingly, I met him on a journey to Willow Creek, for everything there's a season, where we watched this movie called The Passion of the Christ with our friend, um, I just forgot his name, um, Jim Caviezel and... Braveheart, right? I know, I just wanted to call him William Wallace, but that's not who he is. Mel Gibson. We met watching The Passion of the Christ at Willow Creek Church. Seasons for both of those things have changed drastically. And then he's diagnosed with cancer. And he goes back to Texas, lives in Dallas, and each time he would go for chemo, um, Tim, my brother-in-law, would take him. And Tim would leave, and he would be devastated by what the chemo was doing to his body, and the radiation, all that stuff that just is not fair and is not okay. But he's also trying to fight for something, right? So there's this thing happening. And Tim would get in the truck on the way out and say, we go to the grocery. Piggly Wiggly, I think is what it was. I need peanut butter, I need jelly, I need bread, and I need Oreo cookies and a piece of fruit. And I need you to get about 150 servings of each of those. And Tim went in the first time, gets all the bags, comes back out of the truck. Brett was too, even too exhausted to even get out of the truck and take them. They drive to a space in Dallas of the darkest poverty and loneliness. And they park the truck and Brett walks around the truck, drops the tailgate, sits on the back of the truck and starts making peanut butter jelly sandwiches. And as people come out of alleyways, he hands a sandwich and a bag of chips and a piece of fruit and Oreos because he said, no one should end their meal with fruit. You should always have something fun. (laughs) And he hands out all the food every time. Not days after, not when he was feeling better, but on the way home. And Tim would ask him, why are you doing this? And he's like, because if I go home the way I feel right now, I'm going to hate the world. I need to know that somebody else is fighting for survival too. And so by sitting here and feeding this community, I know I'm not the only one fighting. And that gives me hope that I'm not alone in fighting for life. It influenced me because after Brett passed away, the very next Christmas, Tim was up here. And so on, th- on Christmas Eve morning, we packed up peanut butter and jelly and bread. That was before Washington Park had festivals and flea markets and stuff in it. And like 
water hopping up. It just had like crack and heroin. And we would go in the morning before dawn broke. And we just made peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. We sat on the back of the truck. In memory of the guy who reminded us that survival, survival is beautiful. Because there's beauty in everything. With hearts set on forever in the mystery of God. And it doesn't have to be fair. But it usually doesn't happen when we're alone. You don't have to be by yourself when you're experiencing a season of darkness. But when you're experiencing a season of success, you don't have to be alone either. You can invite others out of oppression, out of separation, to eat and drink with you and to celebrate. So there's this boy and his name is Russell and he became the backpack kid all because he could swing his arms in front of him and behind him very fast and keep a straight face the whole time and he was on Saturday Night Live and he's friends with Rihanna I'm not sure if that's a positive how, how that works out and he's been in so many music videos of hip-hop artists that are doing crazy inappropriate things and then there he is swinging his arms side to side and everyone goes huh it's Backpack Kid he has over 1.6 million followers on Instagram that's crazy for arms and a backpack but in 2016 and 2017 his story started to turn the season started to change because while he was in all of these things his skin tone, his melanin was changing his story because he was a white boy in a predominantly black community and he was getting all kinds of hate. Why are you dancing with them? Why are you spending time with them? By this time it's 2016 and 17, you understand the political context of our country right now? And here's this white kid spending time dancing and just getting destroyed and so he changed his statement on Instagram and his profile to say my goal is to end racism in America lofty and then he made this post and I just want to read it to you in the voice of 15 16 year old right so don't critique my English here why can't y'all accept the fact that I have a lot of black friends, LOL? I have white friends too, but they don't like doing this dancing video stuff I do. So that's why you never see them. I like being the only white person when I go to a music video shoot or wherever because it makes me stand out. But if I'm not the only one, that's good too. Because that means what I'm doing must be working. And that should inspire people to learn that just because a white person is hanging around a bunch of black people, that doesn't mean it's wrong because we aren't the same race. And it should teach people that racism is not okay. And y'all started following me because of the way I stand out. 
I'm just trying my best to get my viewers to like or dislike people for who they are and not their skin color, of which they had no choice over. Last sentence, interesting. And then he says, keep it at 100, right? And then at the bottom, which I cut off in this page, it, it actually says in capital letters, tag a friend who doesn't like black people. That's what he said at the bottom. There's beauty in everything. Because you can take a dance where you swing your arms and turn it into a message that says, why are you even questioning who I hang out with? But just because you're questioning, I can give you an answer. This community of friends likes to dance. And it's really interesting that he was like, none of my white friends can dance. I'm like, yep, pick me, can't do it. So I hang out with this group and I hang out with that group and why do you care? Because both are beautiful. What season are we in? It's the question I want you to take home with you this week. And here's how I want you to answer it. Is there something going on in our house that defines the season that I am in? Because it's going on around me, that means it's going on with me. And then, ask the second question. What have I heard from Echo? Because just because my family may be in a season of celebration, it doesn't mean that we are. And we eat together. And we drink together. We celebrate together, and we have hearts set on forever together. So the church that is going to see that everything is beautiful is going to be the church that asks the question, what season are we in? And whoever is next to us, we help them hear and see beauty even in the pain. And we don't tell them about it. We just sit next to each other as we go through it, and we eat and drink together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the stories that you have taught me beauty in, in the moment that I thought everything was lost. And I praise you for chapters that allow us to question whether or not everything is yours. And I pray that you teach us a little bit more how to be happy and to find joy in our work and to eat and drink together in a space where everyone belongs. It's in your name we pray. Amen.